Father, we, we come before you. We wish to sit at your feet. We wish to learn. But first, we recognize your grace and mercy towards us. For we know the whole earth is under a curse and is ruled by the evil one. We ask that you would give us strength in this life, that you would fill us not only full of your spirit, but full of your word, that we would be able to recall it and apply it. Father, we understand our flesh is weak, but our spirits are willing. And so as we have those willing hearts, we ask that you would instruct and guide and bless. In Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, when I was here, we focused on flattery and the dangers of it. Uh, You know those cheesy pickup lines that I gave you, a couple of those. I heard another one this last week. A guy goes up to a young lady and says to her, do you work for Google? And the girl goes, well, no. But the guy says, well, you're sure everything I'm looking for. You know, something like that, these cheesy pickup lines. And that's flattery. That's to get something that you want. Now, if you look at the whole Bible, God is the theme of the Bible. If you had to say, what's the global theme of the Bible? It's God. He is the one that is the focus. But this week, as we will see, we will find the heart of the gospel in this chapter. This is where it is located. Paul comes to the governor Felix and he interacts with him as a result of the Jews bringing charges or accusations against this apostle. And so he goes to this court and you already know what has taken place by the previous messages, how he ended up getting there. And Paul begins to lay out his defense against the accusations of the Jews. And the accusations that the Jews are leveling against Paul are listed in verse 5 of Acts chapter 24. Just look there for a moment. It says, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. So those are the charges that they are bringing against Paul. And really, they just don't like him. They're jealous of him. He's having a tremendous impact with the Gentiles out there, and he is telling the Jews that they don't have to follow the law, but if they want to, they can. There is no sin in that, but it's now a different dispensation. It's now a different time. We don't live under the law as Christians, as the bride of Christ. We live under, quote-unquote, the dispensation of grace. And so the Jews, since they didn't like Paul, they actually wanted to execute him. And they had planned a couple of times to take his life. Now going in verse 10 of Acts chapter 24, Paul makes his defense to the governor. It says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Now as you read that, you go, oh, he's flattering the governor. No, he's not. He's just coming straight forward, not like Tertullus, which was the attorney that accompanied Ananias. Remember, he was just fawning over him in a servile manner, all the things that he was saying. And Paul doesn't do that. Paul just speaks straightforward as we should do and not use flattery. Verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot 
prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Paul quotes what he believes in, or he, he tells the, the court what he believes in, the law and everything that is written in the prophets. Now, we have the New Testament. The New Testament reveals what was hidden in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament was set up to portend or to lead us to the future of what would happen with the Messiah, Jesus, and his death, burial, and resurrection, and the ultimate, ultimate um, redemption of people on this earth. And in the Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament, it's divided into five sections. You have the law. You have history, you have poetry, you have the major prophets, and you have the minor prophets. Now, since you all have the books of the Old Testament memorized, right? The Old Testament law was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. That's where God took Moses and says, write out, this is what the people are supposed to be doing. After the law, you have the history So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua begins the history. Joshua judges Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Ezra, right? He is also history. And Nehemiah is history. And you go beyond that. You go to poetry. Of course, you have the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and some people include in that Lamentations because there's a lot of poetry in there. And then you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, right? But not Hosea. Hosea would be the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So that's how the book is divided up. The law is the ceremonial, civil, and moral law. When Jesus came, he did away with the ceremonial law. That's why we don't have sacrifices of lambs. That's why we don't have to observe the feasts. We can if we want to. We're free to do that, but we don't have to any more so than the Jews. They would have had to, and if they're still under that covenant, they are to be cut off from their people if they don't. That would be the equivalent of saying in church, if we're still under some type of law in the church, that if you don't come to church and you're not fellowshipping with the church, you're to be cut off with your people. And, you know, it's that type of standard that was in the Old Testament. And then there's the civil law. Civil, like uh, if a man has a bull and it gores somebody, the bull is supposed to be killed. And if they were warned, there's penalties that come with that. And there is... Uh, a, a stipulation for mold in a building that the priest is supposed to come and view the house where the mold might be. If we employed that today, you would call me up if you found mold in your house and I would come and inspect your house. And you would not be able to put polyester together with cotton in two different materials because they would tear. Things like that is what the Old Testament was concerned with. In the New Testament, we don't have to worry about that. The history, 
that we went through uh, in the Old Testament that deals with the nation of Israel, how it began and where it has ended up and even prophecies of where it's going to be in the future. And the poetry, you have love songs, you have praise, you have wisdom, you have laments all in that. Now, did you guys ever have a class where you had to memorize some poetry? Not like roses are red, violets are blue, you know, where you had poetry, you had to put it down. English literature, they usually went through some poetry and you learned how to read poetry and you learned how to understand it and you learned the different types of speech that could be employed. Well, that's the Hebrew poetry as well, but Hebrew poetry doesn't necessarily rhyme like the rhythm that we have in our poetry. And then the prophets, the major prophets, they would come and declare the word of God. They would also tell people about things that are coming in the future and calls to repentance and obedience and judgments that were to come upon the people, both the major and the minor prophets. So if you want to know anything about that and how God acted in times past, you go to the Old Testament. But Paul reaffirms his beliefs in front of these Jews. He says belief in his belief in God and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he establishes that. He believes in the Holy Scripture. He believes in the hope of the resurrection of everyone. The difference was he interpreted the Scriptures differently. Now, you've heard me talk about interpretation if you've been here uh, for a while. Uh, if you go to First Corinthians chapter 11, it says that a woman is supposed to have her head covered and a man is not supposed to have his head covered. And you can interpret that to be if you're wearing a hat, you're sinning inside of church. And if women don't have a doily on their head, then there's going to be a problem. You could interpret it that way. Uh, and misinterpretation is all over the place. Um, also in the Old Testament, you've heard me say this one in Ecclesiastes. Wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything, right? We can preach that and then you have lots of money and lots of wine. And, and no, But that would be a misinterpretation of scripture and you have to interpret it in context. And there's a lot of error out there, but Paul interpreted the Old Testament differently once he had the encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews believed that righteousness came through obedience to the law. In other words, righteousness, being right before God, that's called justification. And I'll touch on this a little bit more. But when God looks at us, if we do not have his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, we are not justified. We are not declared right. It'd be like a judge with a gavel, hearing all the evidence, and then saying, not guilty. That's justified. Or he would say, guilty as charged. You're not justified if you're guilty as charged. And so Paul is saying that the righteousness that you think comes by the law does not. And that's what the Jews believe. They believe they just had to do certain things. And if they did those things, then they would be righteous. They could sin like they were from H-E double toothpicks or hell. During the week, they could do that and then they could offer a sacrifice at the end. There are religions like that today. There are sects of Christianity like that today. You say enough prayers, enough times, and your sins are forgiven. That's if it's not a mortal sin. Mortal sin might be another problem and you might have to pay a little bit. And you remember indulgences inside the church? I don't know if they're still around today, but they were certainly around in centuries past where you paid your way to righteousness. 
And God says, no, that's not the way to righteousness. You can't give enough money. You can't do enough works in order to become righteous. Paul taught that righteousness came through faith in the Messiah, who he preached was Jesus. And they didn't like that because he was disrupting their mode of transportation in religion. They had a particular religion. All other religions in the world are man's attempts to reach God. Christianity is God's attempt to reach us. And he doesn't require anything from us except trust in him. That's it. And that's how we get to heaven. So if you think you need to do something to gain righteousness, you don't. Or approval. You know, God can be disappointed in the way that we live our lives and the sins that we commit. But he still approves of us if we have the Messiah. He knows that we are frail. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are not able to live a perfect life. And even after you become a Christian, you're still going to sin. It's like people get this idea in their mind. Well, let me ask you the question. How many times can you commit a particular sin that makes you no longer saved? You think about it. A hundred times? A thousand times? Do I become not saved after I commit the same sin for a thousand times? Well, you might start to question, are you saved? And that's a good question to ask. But it's not to be the focus of what you do. The focus is supposed to be on Jesus Christ and what he has done. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. And so you're going to sin throughout your whole life. Hopefully you sin less, but you don't become sinless. And, and that's what we have to trust in. Like, God, you, you said you would deliver me, and I'm going to trust in that, and I want to get it right, but I can't. Remember Romans chapter 7, the end of the chapter, Paul wanted to do certain things, and he couldn't do them. And the things he didn't want to do, those are the very things he did. And he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so Paul preached grace. He did not preach righteousness comes by works. Of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 confirms that for us. Now, with Paul's hope in the resurrection, he has an eye on the prize. Being saved, he is going to act like it. He's going to try to do what he's supposed to. And that's what he says in verse 16. He says, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man, because he has a hope in the resurrection. If you have a hope in the resurrection, when you die, your body's going to be raised to righteousness. You have that hope, you train here for that time when your training is done god takes you and you might think i'm so ready to go can i just go now no you can't go now your training is still not done and the training for others that they will benefit from your life that's why you're still here otherwise we'd be gone when our time is done he takes us. And so Paul, he forgets the things which are behind and reaches forth into those things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. So it's not that that brings righteousness to him, pressing towards the mark. He's just training for what lies ahead. So he spells out, going on, I digress here, he spells out his version of events that got him arrested and sent to Felix. Verse 17 says, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. 
but there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless I was, excuse me, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I should in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So twice he's talking about the resurrection. Pay attention to that. In verse 22, here Felix gets a delay. It says, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, and by the way, by the way, the way, the way, if, if you do any research on quote unquote, the way that started in 1942, it was started by this guy named Victor. I forget his last name, but he started this movement called the way they didn't believe in the Trinity. They didn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of sexual problems with the leadership and deception going on there. And it was a big cult and it became really big during the Jesus people movement. And it was sucking people away from what was right and what was true. And so they tried to adopt this term or this name, the way, and they tried to make their church the way. It's just the way is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's all you have to believe in. And you can name your church the way, but hopefully it is properly centered on the scriptures and you're not getting off like the way did back in 1942. Now, going on here, it says, um, adjourn the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. Verse 23. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on, you should probably underline this. First, we had the resurrection, and here we have righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. These are the heart of the gospel. These are the things, if understood correctly, lead to Christ and lead to eternal life. Now, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. So Felix was afraid about righteousness, self-control, the judgment to come, and previously mentioned the resurrection. Verse 26, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So how long was Paul in prison? At least Two years and 12 days waiting for a trial. Now, you can do a Bible study on that. When justice is delayed, the hearts of the people fail. Are you seeing justice delayed in our society? I could talk about that. I could also talk about bribes and politicians seeking to enrich themselves off the people. I could talk about that because that is in this passage. I can talk about the fear of Felix why was he so fearful about what Paul was talking about? 
I think there's some insights there. So there were four things that Paul focuses on in this chapter, and I've given them to you. Number one, the resurrection. Number two, righteousness. Number three, self-control. And number four, judgment to come. Now, you can call this a quadrilateral or a rhombus. You go, who? A what? It's just a four-sided box. That's what it is. A quadrilateral, equal sides. It's a square. You have these four things. And this comes up quite a bit, especially when I've taught you before. There are four things that all questions that people have about Jesus Christ and God, they center around in just life. Remember what they are? I've told you several times. Origin, morality, meaning, and destiny. That's a quadrilateral, right? And then there's four things that churches use to dictate doctrine and practice. And they are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. The one that is at the top in our church is scripture. The second one is reason. The third one is tradition. In some Calvary chapels, it's experience. You, you go back and forth. It, it doesn't matter. Those two can flip. But I want scripture to be number one and reasoning through the scriptures. And you know, you've heard me mention this before. You know churches that have tradition as number one. The Catholic church, tradition is number one. They don't use scripture to guide the tradition, the tradition guides the interpretation of the scripture. So four things that Paul focuses on here, again, the resurrection, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So I'm going to focus on those here for a moment. First, the resurrection. The core belief, I mean the heart around these four things, is the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we are fools. You guys got that? If there is no resurrection, we're doing this all in vain. We might as well just go frolic in the rain that's outside, go down to the beach, go to the mountains, whatever you want to do. Just live your life and give no concern about the next life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 19. Paul makes this argument. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who are or who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, we're acting foolishly if there is no resurrection. There is a resurrection. Jesus proved it. He rose from the dead. Now, we have been told what will be our history in advance. We have been told the future. We know how the story of the human race ends. It ends in a resurrection of everyone. Those who die, their bodies get resurrected. Those who are here at the rapture, they don't die, but they still get a new body. And they get a resurrected body. It's brand new, according to Paul, in the book of First Corinthians. Now, it's going to be good news, very good news for some, and very bad news for most, this resurrection, the idea of the resurrection. Our bodies will be resurrected, not just resuscitated. There's a difference. Lazarus was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. Remember when Jesus had him rise from the dead? Jairus' daughter was resuscitated. 
She was not resurrected. She had to die twice. Lazarus had to die twice physically. Oh, great. I get to do this again. You know, that's, that's where Lazarus was. But when you get your resurrected body, we have entry into heaven and earth. In our physical bodies, we don't. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's where our resurrected bodies will reside in the new kingdom of Jerusalem if we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this truth is taught. In the Old Testament, Job said in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, and you'll recognize this as a song. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. So this is after he dies, he says he will see God. He believes in the resurrection. The final line of that, how my heart yearns within me, yearns for the resurrection, yearns to see God face to face. Psalm 71 verse 20 says, though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, bitter, you will restore my life again from the depths of the earth. You will again bring me up. In other words, you're going to be Revived, you're going to get that resurrected body. And Ezekiel 37, if you read the chapter 7 through 10, especially in there, them bones, them bones, them crazy bones, the knee bones connect to the thigh bone. You know that song? You guys remember that song? That's what Ezekiel 37 talks about. And so the bones come together and the sinews and the, the tendons and the muscles and the flesh, and God breathes into them and they become living again. God is going to resurrect the righteous from Israel as well as we who are part of the church. This is taught, and there are several other passages. That's definitely the Old Testament. New Testament, we've had it twice here in this chapter. The resurrection. It's all over the New Testament. You don't have to look very hard. The book of Revelation, chapter 20, 21, it talks about the resurrection there. And so this idea that we do not cease to exist here is taught throughout the Bible. Now, secondly, righteousness. What makes us righteous? What makes us right? Have you ever saw somebody and talked to them and they mentioned somebody else and they say, well, they're a really good person. You've heard me mention this before. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. No, you're not good. This was a problem with the self-esteem movement that was around during the 80s and 90s. You go to a little rugrat and you start teaching them, oh, you're so good. And then they smash something on the floor and break it. And they just, no, they turn to you. No, they are not good. They're a bundle of sin just waiting to be unraveled. That's who they are. And we carry that with us, except I'll get to the next point. The self-control comes in. So it douses, it suppresses this idea of unrighteousness. We know that scripture says there is no one who is good, no one who is righteous. And then all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it goes on to say in Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us and that we were sinners and yet we were sinners. Christ died for us. He had to die to redeem us. And we also know Romans chapter 5 verse 12. 
It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in the same way, death came to all men because all sin. So that's a consequence of sin. Unrighteousness is what is pervasive with everybody on earth, and we still carry that in our flesh. God is going to separate that. He's going to dissect the unrighteousness out, and you're only going to have righteousness. But whose righteousness is it? It's not yours. It's God's righteousness that's given to you. The word is imputed to you. If you think you're good, just look over your life. All the sins you have committed. And the older you get, the more there are. And the more you think about it, the more depressed you get. Because there's so many sins. That's why God tells us the greatest in God's kingdom is the servant of all. Focus on everybody else. When you focus on yourself, when you are narcissistic, when we love ourselves so much, we become depressed with good reason. Because we know that nothing good lives in us. Just like Paul said, nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. And I desire to do what is good and I want to carry it out. But the thing that I don't want to do, that's the thing that I do. Again, that's Romans chapter 7. And so Paul talks about righteousness. Now, the world, what would the world say makes somebody good? Somebody who goes the way of the world. Somebody who buys into the program of the world. Some might say, well, wealth and power and might determines what is right. No, that's not true. All the money in the world, you know, PhDs, the PhDs that are out there that get these degrees, sometimes they are just absolutely brilliant. No question about it. In their field. You go outside of that, it's like the rest of us. We're all a bunch of idiots. I mean, we we just can't get it right in some other fashion. Um, I'm going to give you a side note here. I think I have time. You know, when we were involved in Desert Storm and the troops went over to the Middle East and to Iraq and they tried to change the military, tried to train them up, tried to help them in maintaining peace in Iraq. They found that they could not teach the people that were there. I'm going to, you can look this up. I'm going to go into this a little bit. You, you can look this up and verify this. One of the problems with those who are Muslims is that they intermarry. And this is a pandemic in the Muslim community. And I know I'm going off on a trail here, but just bear with me. And they are allowed, according to the Quran, to marry their first cousin. They have been doing this for at least 14 generations. Guess what it has produced? It has produced a high population of infant mortality. It has produced a large population of people with a IQ below 70, which would make you, uh, and the one website I looked at that was talking about that, and I went to several to verify this, and it said they, they become 
quote unquote, in the proper use of the term, an idiot, or they are retarded. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. They, they just are not able to comprehend. And when the troops came in and tried to teach uh, the native population their jumping jacks, not a one could do a jumping jack because they couldn't get the coordination down. And that's another thing that's affected is the motor skills. And you see, because of the, the genetic code and being corrupted, and don't take my word for it, just go look it up. Uh, the, in Pakistan, or actually the Pakistanis, I believe it was in England, 70% of them marry their first cousin. And they don't marry outside of that. And so there's genetic problems that just, there are several compounded problems that are on top of each other. Now, just the human race in general, do you think we're smarter or more dumb than Adam? We are more dumb than Adam. We are, you know, evolution would say we're getting better and better and better. No, we're digressing. We're going backward is what we're doing. And this is also in science, the second law of thermodynamics, heat loss. We're going from order to disorder. Everything is dying. Eventually the, the universe will die. But evolutionists come along and say, but we're getting better. No, we're not. We're getting worse. You know, they've done study on the muscle mass of ancients and they were so much stronger than we are. You know, things like this. And so when it, it comes to being smart or having power or having wealth, and, and we think that, oh, they're, they're so good. No, they're not good. Even with wealth, power, and might, the person is still corrupt. All we have is a corruption that grows with the wealth and the power and the might that is out there. And so we, we want to make sure that we look at that and we go, whoa, I'm part of that. I am part of the degradation of society. First Corinthians talks about how we are harmful to ourselves and everyone else around us. And that's where we throw ourselves to God and we say, God, I am not righteous. Please forgive me of my sin. And I continue to do it, but please save me from this body of death. So that's the idea of righteousness and being justified. Now, again, the Jews back at that time, they wanted to be justified by what they did. And Paul, as we went through previously in Galatians, Remember, they wanted to install circumcision and following the law as well as believing in Jesus Christ. And Paul was just vehemently opposed to that. And he was talking about circumcision and he said, you know, if you're going to go ahead and circumcise yourself and you think that's part of believing, well, why don't you just go ahead and a whole way and just, whoo, ginsu knife, just take off everything is what he was saying to the Galatians. He was so mad that they would try to install some type of works to be righteous. He was just in their face. And that's what caused Acts chapter 15 to take place where he went to the council in Jerusalem. And of course, James spoke for the elders and the apostles that were there saying, no, we don't require you to be circumcised or follow the law of Moses. And he gave him a couple of things just not to offend the Jews. And that's what we have to take with us. It's not the works that save us. We're not righteous because of what we do. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and 22, or through 22. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather than through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's how we become righteous. 
believe in Jesus, he says, okay, now my righteousness is imputed to you. You are right before God. You have been justified, which leads to self-control. You have been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. We have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That comes from the Holy Spirit. He gives us self-control. Now, I hate that one. I want to give myself fully to whatever I'm doing. Whether, whether it was sports or whatever it might have been in the past or work, I just want to open the floodgates and do it. And with sin, I want to open the floodgates. Why do I hold back? Just give into it. The Epicureans, you know, they were, they were doing that type of thing. Pleasure is the thing that you want to seek after. Just give yourself fully over to it. And God says, no, exercise self-control. And we're supposed to teach this to our children, self-control. Calm down, take a breath. It's okay, Tommy. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And they get all excited about something and they get worried. You got to teach them the fruit of the Spirit, what it is to be self-controlled and patience. And we are vulnerable to attacks from the enemy if we do not possess this self-control. And if we do not master it, The enemy will get us every time. What's your temptation? Everybody has one, maybe several. You know, I've I've told you one of the most innocuous ones that I have is donuts. I've told you that. And particular donuts. I'm pretty particular, you know, and and I like particular donuts. Mm, It's hard to resist. Or just eating junk food. I like junk food. And, you know, if I just ate what I wanted to all the time, I... They would have to cart me out of here. You know, it it would be a terrible thing for me. And this self-control, you have to say, no. When Patty and I, we were up in Lake Tahoe, and as a treat, we would go to Starbucks in the morning, and we'd get a coffee before we went and started lumberjacking. I have a video of Patty cutting down a tree with a chainsaw, by the way. And... So we'd go up there and we, we sat there, we're waiting for a coffee and we see this thing first thing in the morning. It's a vente and it has caramel, looks like chocolate and it's swirled and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that thing's like 800 calories, you know, for that one drink that's up there. I'm thinking, oh, it tastes good, but boy, to drink something like that, just to power that down and then eat the rest of the day. That's the first thing you have in the morning. It's like it's no self-control. Now, it might be something, you might have a self-control problem with anger. I just saw this video. This guy is in a courtroom. The camera is on the judge. The judge looks like she's five foot two and a blonde woman, maybe in her late 30s. And she's adjudicating this family court matter. And the man is asking for a restraining order against his wife. And the judge says, could you tell me why you're asking for a uh, restraining order? And she said it in legalese. And he goes, well, yeah, things are just, you know, getting really bad over the past few months. And, and he went on to explain. And the wife who's sitting there jumps in and says, hey, this is not about my personal life. And the judge turns to her and says, if you interrupt one more time, I'm going to find you in contempt and have you incarcerated for 10 days. And so the guy continues and she breaks in again. She goes, that's it. I find you in contempt. 
10 days, take her away. She jumps up and goes over the desk of the judge and tries to attack this judge. And then the, the sheriffs come in and just grab her. I think she has a control problem, an anger problem. And God says, no, get that anger under control. The fool gives full vent to his anger. Now, I admit, I've done that in the past. Not proud of it. Maybe you have too. But I've never put my fist through a wall. Something breaking, broke some glass or broke something. I haven't thrown something against the wall. But I know guys who have had, have done those types of things. And so God says, exercise that self-control. Now, several passages in Scripture talk about self-control. And just by way of illustration, and I'm running out of time here. By way of illustration, remember... Uh, you know who Jim Carrey is? He had a movie, Yes Man. And he was always saying no, no, no. And he went to a seminar and the guy said, the word is yes. And he's supposed to say yes. So he started saying yes to everything. That would be foolish to say yes to everything. But he did in the movie and it's supposed to be fun and he, he grows as a result of that. But it takes wisdom to know when to say yes and when to say no. That is the exercise of self-control. We're supposed to think before we go forward in any endeavor, especially the big endeavors of life. Where we live, if we're going to school, when we get married, how many kids we're going to have, what are my finances like? You always want to exercise self-control in that. Uh, recently, the lottery was what, like a billion dollars? How many tickets did we buy? What's your chances of winning? Less than getting struck by lightning. You know, and, and people, they'll just, well, I have a chance. Well, I can't win if I don't play, right? That's the attitude that we have, but it's like, well, okay, if you want to do that, you are free to do that, but let's use some wisdom and self-control. Now, do a test on yourself. See if you have self-control. The next time you get an urge, say no to self. It may be a good urge, may not be a good urge, but you know what I'm talking about. If there's something that's placed before you and you can choose to do it or choose not to do it, can you say no to that thing and just walk away? I saw this other video. This man was explaining people need vitamin N. Vitamin N. And he goes on to explain what vitamin N is. Vitamin N is the ability to say no to someone. And he said, if you have that with self-control, your life will be blessed. And that's the teaching from Scripture as well. And then finally, judgment to come. Three and a half minutes. There's a judgment to come. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Referring to Christians, this is the Bema seat. In the Greek, the word is Bema. It's where we get our reward or a lack of reward. But we still go to heaven. Then there is the great white throne judgment, which is located in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And that is where everybody is resurrected from all time, all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way to the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Everybody gets resurrected there. There will be some people that died in the millennium that will be resurrected that are righteous. But most everyone at that great white throne judgment will be judged and would be cast into hell. That is what was being told to Felix. And Felix started to judge himself and he became fearful. Perfect love casts out fear. It means he did not have the love of God in his heart.
If you're worried about your condition, where you're going, are you going to heaven, are you not going to heaven, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That will cast out the fear of death. We don't have to fear death. Now, it's the unknown, and we all have a little bit of trepidation about it, but it's just the next step. And remember, we exist forever whether we are righteous or unrighteous. The two passages, and you can write them down, I've given to you them, I've given them to you previously, Daniel twelve two and Matthew chapter twenty five, verse forty six. Both of them say that there is eternal life and either eternal contempt or eternal punishment. Those are the only two places. If you ask Jesus to save you, it's eternal life. If you reject his offer of salvation, it's eternal punishment. I didn't make the choices. I'm just declaring to you what the word of God says. And the word of God can be trusted. It is prophetic. It has proven itself over the centuries. My prayer for all of you is that you can walk out of here with no fear. You don't have to worry what's going to happen. You understand you are a sinner just like I'm a sinner. We need to turn to God and say, God, forgive me those times where I sin. You know my heart. I want to do what is right, just like the Apostle Paul. And he will bless you, continue to bless you, as you turn to him and say, forgive me of my sin. Let's pray. Father, we, we do that right now. We ask that you would forgive us of our sin, whether it's lust, greed, anger, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, dissensions, fa- factions, all of those things, Lord, that we have in our hearts. We ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would set us right. We thank you for the ministering power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would do that even from this point on the rest of the day. We ask for your blessing in this, Lord, and we wish to praise you even more. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Please stand.